1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. I'm Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the network. Every month or so, we interview the author of a new book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dan Stone, Professor of History at the University of London, to the show. When I was in grad school, everyone who even had a passing interest in the Holocaust read Michael Maris' book, The Holocaust in History. The book was a model of historical scholarship, fair yet assertive in its judgments, retrospective in coverage, yet forward-looking in its assessment of the field. The book was well-received. It was read by, as I say, generations of graduate students, uh, and it was a standard. The book has now been supplanted, supplanted by Dan's recent study, Histories of the Holocaust, published by Oxford University Press. And Dan's book is every bit as fundamental in assessing the field as was Maris's, judicious, illuminating, and enormously comprehensive. Generations of grad students will find themselves reading the book, as will both professional and amateur historians. I'm thrilled to have Dan on the show today, and I'd like to start our conversation, Dan, uh, both by saying thanks for joining us and and inviting you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian. Hi, Kelly. Thanks very much for inviting. Um, well, I think
2: um, I came to study the Holocaust, I guess for a whole host of reasons. I think it was part of my consciousness when I was growing up, something that was part of family history. My father took me to Yad Vashem when I was 11. I knew about the Holocaust. Um, And when I was an undergraduate studying history, uh, I knew from very early on in my first year as an undergraduate that I wanted to be a historian. I was so uh, intellectually stimulated by my studies, I, I really wanted to carry on. So the question was, I think, how to how to find something that would be stimulating enough to, to make me as a graduate student get out of bed in the morning. I think that's, that's, the, that's the key problem, isn't it, for a PhD student? You want to do but you're working on your own fundamentally, especially in the British system, unlike in, in the US where there are there are no classes to go to. And so on. Um, you have to be self-motivated. And in the third year of my undergraduate degree, I can remember shortly before I was due to take my finals, I was supposed to be revising. I came across in... Uh, the main bookshop in Oxford. Uh, Saul Friedlander's edited volume, "Probing the Limits of Representation," which is a conference paper from a famous conference at uh, UCLA in 1991. Um, and I was so excited by this book, I, I bought it and spent a couple of days sitting in the volume Library reading it instead of revising for my finals. And that was that was what motivated me to to go on. I knew I wanted to do something related to the Holocaust. Um, But what excited me about that book in particular was I think a particular intellectual moment, debates about postmodernism, about representation, about narrative and so on, were perhaps uh, already becoming old hat in the States, but in Oxford and I think in the UK more generally, they were still uh, relatively fresh and relatively controversial and exciting. And to me, this conjunction of, uh, I think, quite conceptually complex and exciting Ideas about how history should be written, uh, particularly as they were being debated with respect to the Holocaust, was something that, that really fired uh, my imagination and made me want to uh, to get going
1: with my uh, further research. Yeah, I, I read the website, the, the, the official university website, and and on there you are, and maybe you wrote this, maybe somebody else did it, described as a historian of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do, it. How, oh, good, excellent. Um, so, so how does that? shaped your approach to investigating the Holocaust? Well, I think um, there are lots
2: of ways to write about the Holocaust, of course, Um, and most historians begin life, particularly in their training as graduate students, writing uh, archival history, writing events history. Uh, What I was more interested in as a graduate student, and still to some extent today, uh, was thinking uh, less... I I didn't want to write a study of uh, I don't know, let's say children in the, in the witch ghetto or 5th mm-hmm. Army at Stalingrad, whatever it happened to be. I wanted to think more about how history is written. Uh, and what's so uh, fantastic, I think, about the historiography of the Holocaust is precisely that it's so uh, so vast and so sophisticated. And it acts as a way of understanding historiography in general and, how, and the way in which we write history in general. Uh, so all the questions that were being debated with respect to Holocaust historiography in the early 1990s are, are really uh, questions about how we write history at all, uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I found so exciting. And so by history of ideas, I partly mean uh, historiography, the history of history mm-hmm. writing, uh, but in general I mean, uh, because the Holocaust is only one of the things that's, that I work on. I've also uh, worked on uh, history of race thinking, history of anthropology, uh, the history of um, the cultural politics of the far right in Britain in the early 20th century, for example. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested in ideologies about the spread of ideas, uh, the ways in which ideas and action interact, uh, and I, I use the term history of ideas to distinguish it from, I suppose, what's more of an American uh, tradition intellectual history. Which, to me, I mean, the two things are more or less synonymous. But I think intellectual history. Smacks to some extent of history of philosophy of mm-hmm. uh, the history of great men, uh, and the, the you know if, if you could think of uh, a journal like the Journal of the History of Ideas, which mm-hmm. is a fabulous journal that tends I think very much to be about uh, good taste, uh, ideas that we want to remember from the Renaissance uh, and the enlightenment onwards, uh, whereas history of ideas I think uh, is more about ideas in context that's to say. I mean, that's an idea borrowed from the Cambridge school, Skinner and Popart and so on. Mm-hmm. And that also requires you, I think, to, uh, to think not just about ideas that we don't like or that sort informed our tradition, uh, but ideas that we don't like, uh, ideas that have been forgotten or dismissed, and to try and show how at any given point in time, a whole host of ideas are circulating and eating in society. Uh, and that the ones that we remember are, often, in fact, uh, the ones that are the most aberrant, because they're the ones that are the, most, the, the greatest ideas. If think of, think of the, the historiography on Hobbes, for example. Um, mm. It's it's, uh, it's clearly phenomenally important, but Hobbes uh, is not a representative thinker of his time. So the great thinkers are, are precisely people who don't, uh, in some ways, uh, tell us the most about their age. And I want always to think about... Um, people who are more representative of the age, which is why I've spent a lot of time also working on obscure figures uh, in, on, in the history of British fascism. Not important uh, as thinkers, uh, but important for telling us something about the circulation of ideas at any different points in time. But with respect to the Holocaust, um, I think there I'm, I'm more interested, from a present point, of view. I was, I'm more interested there in... Uh, historiography strictly speaking, that's to say a history of history writing, uh, debates about methodology, and thinking about how um, historiography does not take place in a vacuum. That the, the debates uh, that go on amongst historians of the Holocaust take place uh, in a very wide range of contexts, geographical or political, linguistic, cultural, and so on. Uh, and those uh, contexts, I think, are, are crucial for understanding the ways in which uh, debates in Holocaust historiography uh, are shaped and developed. So I was interested, I think, um, some historians still think perhaps that uh, writing, the history, history writing is not, not real history. Somehow, I always, I always had that uh, sense that when I was a graduate student in Oxford, there was a certain sniffiness about my interests. Uh, but, but historians' texts are also part of the world and can therefore also be historicized like anything else. Uh, and mm-hmm. therefore, I've, I've always been fascinated by the ways in which uh, a phenomenon that is so, so intensively studied is studied, because that's, that is how we know it. We, you know, we know it primarily through uh, representations of it that we produce. Excellent. So how did you come to decide to write this book? I guess I guess because I could. <laughs> um, and what I, what I mean by that is that I think a lot of the ideas there have been percolating for a very long time. Um, I mean, I don't want to make myself sound longer in the, in the tooth than I am, but you know, I've been thinking about some of these topics since I was an undergraduate, and so uh, over 20 years then, uh, a lot of these topics are things that have been playing on my mind, and having taught uh, a, a third-year undergraduate for what's traditionally called in this country special subject, i.e. a, a document-based course, which is aimed at, if you like, the initial stage of training for historians. Um, having taught a course like that on the Holocaust for a dozen years or so, uh, I felt, um, I think I just felt able to do it in a way that I haven't been beforehand, that uh, I felt uh, like not only that I knew the literature well enough, but that my own ideas had settled to some extent. Uh, and therefore, I, I thought it was, it was worth doing. Uh, and, of course, you know, you started off by mentioning Maris. Maris's book uh, is still, I think, a, a wonderful book, but its, it's, it's only a real flaw, which is, of course, not Maris's fault, is that it's out of date. Uh, that's, you know, that's why historiography is important. It's, it's necessarily out of date because it was published in 1987 uh, and since the end of the Cold War, the uh, availability of archival material and the development of the historiography for Holocaust uh, has been phenomenal. Uh, and so I think there was a need for the book, as well as a personal sense that I was able to write.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you that, actually. Do you see your book as, as an update of Maris's, or are you asking similar but not the same questions? I think the latter. Uh, uh-huh. I think because... I, I was guided
2: mainly by the historiography itself. I mean, those are my sources. So the, the shape of the book was, was partly determined by my own interests. But I think those interests have been shaped by what historians have been doing on the Holocaust since the end of the Cold War. So uh, my sets of questions are, are, I think, related to Maris's, but the book is structured quite differently. So where, uh, where he takes a classic division of uh, perpetrators, victims, bystanders, I was was driven more by thinking thematically about it, the key uh, key topics in the historical world. Uh, and I think that's um, partly because I, I think that way of approaching is intellectually more uh, stimulating. Uh, but secondly, I think just a, it was a reflection of the state of feel, um, and I don't think it would have looked rather um, conventional and, and tedious simply to copy. <laughs> so whilst I'm mean, feeling there's an enormous debt to, to Maris' work there, uh, I think my book is uh, is quite different in terms of when structure.
1: So you mentioned when you, uh, in your, your discussion of Maris this explosion of research um, after the Cold War with the opening of the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for some of our listeners who are perhaps not professional historians, can you say a little bit about that and about how that has shaped the both the kinds of questions historians are now able to ask and, and perhaps any kind of constraints or, or limitations that arise out of the kinds of sources or, or maybe points of view that arise out of the kinds of sources that they're now looking at.
0: Yes, uh, I mean, I, th- I think it's uh, first of all a very simple point to say that um, until the end of the Cold War, many of the archives in Eastern Europe were simply inaccessible or for the most part inaccessible to uh western scholars and uh, the historiography of the holocaust has largely been developed by by western scholars the what was written during the communist period in the communist countries is historically of interest uh but uh, there's not very much of it that is salvageable as as good uh, as good history writing um so first of all there's just an enormous uh, explosion of sources that had previously been uh, unavailable. So, you know, the Holocaust Museum in Washington now has literally millions of uh, of records uh, photocopied from uh, Romania, Hungary, Poland, and so on. And all of those countries also now have their own flourishing, to a greater or lesser extent, um, of uh, historiography, research institutes, journals, uh, and so on, devoted to the subject in a way that was impossible uh, until the end of uh, the cold war the the key way I think that that has uh, reshaped the historiography is that it has shifted our understanding of the Holocaust eastwards, which is extremely important because I, I still think um, particularly in the u k and I think possibly in, in in the states as well our if you like, our mental image of the Holocaust is, and we carry a kind of image of the entrance gate to Birkenau in our heads, but we also, I think, have images of the the deportation trains from Western Europe. Uh, And we think about the deportation of uh, the German Jews, uh, the Jews in in France and the Netherlands and so on, Uh, all of which, of course, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't have those images, but the vast majority of the Holocaust's victims were Eastern European Jews Mostly orthodox religious Jews who were killed in Eastern Europe, uh, and uh, the, so the, the shifting eastwards of our uh, historical vision uh, of the Holocaust has been one very important uh, consequence of uh, of the opening of, of those archives. The problems that that engenders I think are for uh, thinking about how to incorporate Western Europe and Eastern Europe together then, how to think of the Holocaust as a whole. Uh, And so sometimes in the recent literature there's a tendency to write about Eastern Europe in a way that forgets Western Europe as a kind of overcompensation perhaps for for previous efforts. Uh, And there's still a need I think to provide a synthetic account which uh, allows us to remember that although the numbers were comparatively small, the Jews of Western Europe should also uh, not be forgotten, and the Jews of the Balkans and so on uh, as well. I think this becomes particularly acute, maybe this is something we'll discuss a little later, When, uh, in in the context of debates about colonialism and the Holocaust, or the the Holocaust as a colonial genocide, which is a concept that, that makes a lot of sense when thinking about the invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the uh, the face-to-face killings of the jews by the Einsatzgruppen or the the mobile killing squads in eastern europe uh, but it's h- harder to square with the uh, the murder of the jews of western europe so i think it's it's been on the one hand it's very important a very um a salutary reminder of just where the holocaust happened and who its victims were primarily but it doesn't uh, solve all our all our problems
1: yeah i I was intrigued in in, in, in the course of, of discussing this question of whether the Holocaust was a German event or a European event mm-hmm. or something else, you make the point that, that it's perhaps not helpful to talk about the Holocaust, but rather we should think about this as the Holocaust, mm-hmm. plural. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that's a, a better way to understand this experience?
0: Because I think, and again, this Uh, Comes from um, the opening up of the 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 Eastern European archives. So not only from those, the end of the Cold War also, I think, has given rise to a reassessment across Europe of um, collaboration and uh, the European, the continent-wide span of 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 the Holocaust. Um, Because what we've what we've discovered, and this is made particularly clear, I think, in all the uh, national commissions that have been produced since uh, the end of the Cold War across Europe, uh, is that what, uh, what the Holocaust was, uh, was a pan-European phenomenon that could not have been carried out by the Germans alone. Uh, and so we still, again, there's, there's a kind of fixed template in our head of what the Holocaust was, this, you know, the, the German uh, murder of the Jews. And yet, Uh, We we see this more and more. First of all, uh, everywhere in Europe, the Germans relied on uh, local collaboration, whether that's at the level of the state or of institutions such as auxiliary police forces or at the level of uh, individuals uh, simply pointing out who is Jewish, who is is not, and so on. Um, But also, uh, we see that um, in some instances, although the... The, the Nazi authorities give a kind of green light to um, the killing process, actually uh, the Germans are relatively uninvolved. So uh, in the case of Slovakia, uh, of uh, France, of uh, Yugoslavia, uh, and especially of Romania, uh, we really see these countries, uh, as, as it's sometimes uh, written in, in the historiography, solving the Jewish question their own way. Uh, so in the case of Romania, uh, which was um, the largest allied force to, to accompany the Wehrmacht uh, invading the Soviet Union, you see the murder of the Jews uh, of Romania and of Romanian-occupied Ukraine, so-called Transnistria, uh, carried out by the Romanians themselves. And I, I don't think they would have done this uh, outside of the context of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union and, and the war on Judeo-Bolshevism and the search for Lebensraum and so on. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not it's not the the Germans who killed the Jews of uh, Odessa or uh, of Transnistria. It was it was the R- Romanians, uh, and that was something that was relatively unknown, I think, until quite recently.
1: Yeah, it, it, am I, I? I think I'm reading you right, and and correct me if I, I, I've misread you. But but my sense is that you believe we're basically at a point after. 20 years of kind of looking at these eastern european archives and and reassessing what we think about the holocaust that that we can draw some consequent or some conclusions about the decision to launch the holocaust with some degree of confidence. But I don't what what I found interesting about your discussion of this is precisely that 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 debate that Emerging consensus seems to be a German or a emerging consensus about the German process, and there doesn't seem to be a parallel literature addressing the decisions of these smaller states. Mm-hmm. Is that is that an accurate kind of read of of the literature, that's, or am I missing? No, that's very interesting. I think that what that points up is
0: the the limits, if you like, of the Holocaust approach. Mm-hmm. That's to say, um, as, I, as I said a few minutes ago the, if you like, indigenous uh, attacks on the Jews would not have happened without the green light provided by the Germans. And there, I think, um, the, the, what you said just now precisely points to that fact, uh, that the decision-making process is a German decision-making process. Um, and that um, once the, I mean, if there is a decision for the final solution, which seems rather in, implausible in, in some ways, but once uh, once the final solution um, is in full swing by the middle of 1942 uh, it's clear I think that um, the Germany's allies can also go ahead and, and do the same thing uh, but the, but that decision making process is, is to some extent driven by Germany's allies so the, the Slovakians uh, Vichy France and so on making their own legislation or, or, or pushing the Germans to, um, to deport Jews so there's a, there's a two way process going on there uh, but I do think you 're right in a sense to say that we still come back to um, thinking about the the, the leaders of uh, of Nazi Germany in order to to recreate this um, this process that was uh, again, something that, uh, that was very important in the so-called regional studies of the Holocaust, which was also one of the consequences of the, the opening up of the Eastern European archives, is that many historians, primarily German historians, produced uh, very detailed um, re- studies of regions of Eastern Europe, such as um, Galicia, um, Lithuania, Belarus, or, or wherever it happened to be. Um, and often the, the details of what happened on the ground tended to obscure the fact that although there's uh, a, a two-way process between the center in and Berlin and, and periphery and in Eastern Europe, actually the, the real decision-making uh, was still being made in Berlin. And sometimes that gets uh, forgotten, I think. And that that's... Uh, that default position is starting, I think, to to return in in the literature. If you look at uh, Sophie Linder's book or, or Peter longerich 's uh, work, I think you can. We're reminded again that um, for all the importance of of the regions and and Nazi Germany's allies, actually uh, the key decision making was being done in in Berlin.
1: And so you talk, or you use the phrase? And I think I can't remember. Is it Momsen? You you talk about cumulative radicalization. Mm um so so f af- where is if I'm right that 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 you think there is an emerging consensus on on not the, the quote unquote decision to launch the holocaust but how the holocaust emerged uh out of this kind of uh uh german set of policy and actions um what is your sense of what that process or what that consensus is
0: Dr. In some ways, a simple question. In some ways, a very difficult one. I think that the the consensus, if if there is one, seems to need to first of all to to require uh, some understanding of the so-called intentionalist-functionalist debate, uh, which probably uh, most people listening will be familiar with because it's something that I think um, students learn about uh, certainly here when they're still at school and then at, at university. And although that debate is not the the be-all and end-all of the historiography, it still remains quite important. And so uh, where I think the consensus uh, has emerged is um, first of all I think to say that um, the functionalist argument, that's to say that policy was being made on an ad hoc basis. Uh, that there was no predetermined blueprint for genocide is absolutely correct. You can see this, that otherwise it makes no sense. Why are, the, why are the Germans still passing laws forbidding uh, German Jews to own pets in uh, 1941 whilst they're busy murdering the Jews of, of, uh, of Poland? Um, so there's, there's clearly no uh, properly coordinated master plan from 1919 or 1925 or 1933, whenever, whenever you choose. Um, but that also doesn't mean... Um, that as as Monsen, uh, I think primarily argued that the Germans kind of fall into this plan uh, into this program by accident. Um, actually, the what what remains so important from the intentionalist arguments, that is to say that Hitler had a plan to kill to, to kill the Jews, which he then implemented at the first opportunity, is not the notion of the plan, but the notion of a, a fantasy, if you like. So, um, Nazism as a as a movement, as a way of thinking. Um, necessarily involves eradicating the Jew, if you like. Uh, And so I think from very early on, there's an incipient fantasy within the Nazi worldview, which is about what Alan Confino calls a world without Jews. That doesn't mean that there is a plan to get rid of the Jews, but it means that there's a kind of vision of or a desire, even if it's unstated somehow, to uh, to make this world a reality. And the consensus that's emerging, I think, in, in the historiography largely is... Um, But for all the things that we associate with the functionalist argument, the the notions of polycracy, of uh, institutional Darwinism, competition between different Nazi agencies, incoherence, the lack of clear channels of communication and so on. What all these um, different agencies and uh, institutions, that are, whether they're party or state institutions, whether it's the, the Wehrmacht or the Office of the Five-Year Plan or the RUSHA or the Gestapo, what they all share ultimately is this uh, desire to uh, to get rid of the Jews. So there is a kind of, uh, what, what they share is an anti-Semitic consensus. And what, what I think historians now uh, share, no matter uh, whether they're writing about specifically about Nazi anti-Semitism, for example, in mm, so-called um, institutes of, of Judenforschung, so institutes for uh, Jewish research at universities or, uh, or non-university uh, institutions, which are specifically devoted to understanding the, the Jewish question, or whether they're writing about local government in the Third Reich, um, increasingly, we see uh, historians are, are, are showing how so much of this uh, of Nazi decision-making policy was filtered through a shared understanding of the need to get rid of the Jews, and some, sometimes that means uh, a disagreement about how to do this or when it should be done. Christopher Browning writes uh, brilliantly about this in terms of the debate between productionists and attritionists in the ghettos; those who think the Jews should be put to work. Uh, until the end of the war and then they can be got rid of those who just want to, to get rid of them immediately. And, and so that helps to explain the the different lifespans of the different ghettos, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, even those who are productionists, they, they're not in favor of sustaining uh, Jewish life in Europe. They simply want to keep the Jews alive whilst they're useful. And so this, that's, the, I think, the, the consensus that's, uh, that's emerging.
1: And you have a nice phrase for- for this, you talk about the return of ideology. Mm-hmm. Why does that happen now?
0: I think again, that's that's a post Cold War phenomenon. Uh, from the sixties uh, and seventies, um, the key uh, the key interpretive frameworks were either fascism for for those on the left, or totalitarianism for those uh, more on the right. Um, and in the nineteen eighties, what you see. Um thanks uh, to Tim Mason and uh, martin bushat and, and Hans Mommsen and others is the rise of uh, the functionalist paradigm so i don 't think this happens um outside of academia primarily, but I think you know if you if you ask the man on the Tel Aviv omnibus in 19, in the mid 1980s <laughs> why why the Nazis killed the Jews you know, that would be a rather stupid question. He'll say, well, it's because they hated the Jews. <laughs> um, but historians in the 1980s were starting to uh, to argue that um, actually there was no clear policy, policy was made uh, on, on the hoof, uh, and so on. Um, and that, I think, culminates with uh, Bauman's book of 1989, Modernity and the Holocaust, um, which we can we can go on to discuss uh, mm-hmm. if if you like, but after I think the the 1990s what you see and again this, this has something to do with the um, the documents that that come from the eastern European archives, we see a much um, a much closer involvement of individuals in in the whole process, and so the more historians produce these very detailed regional studies, these almost micro histories of particular regions, the more they saw the importance of um, not just, if you like, from the functionist perspective, institutions or offices or a bureaucracy of murder, but the more they understood that this bureaucracy didn't in itself kill people, that actually there had to be people on the ground carrying out these uh, these atrocities. And particularly when you think of the first wave of, of the Holocaust, the, uh, the Einsatzgruppen killings in the Soviet Union, this is uh, this is not a factory line genocide in the way that Bauman writes about. This is brutal, vicious, face to face murder of of the of the most uh, shocking kind. Uh, and I think a lot of the uh, the literature on um, on the theme of modernity, for example, had had become a, a bit uh, taken with its own terminology, factory line genocide, industrial mm-hmm. genocide, and so on. As so, uh, this is somehow shocking about um, our, our modern world. But it actually wasn't a description of what uh, what the Holocaust was really like, certainly not in its first stages. Uh, and that was a, a rediscovery uh, driven by, I think, the, the accessibility of new archives in the early 1990s. And so from that, um, there's then a, a, a rediscovery of uh, or a sense that, well, if, if these people on the ground are doing this, what's the justification for it? And so historians started to investigate subjects like uh, ideological indoctrination in the Wehrmacht, um, the uh, intellectuals amongst the SD or the SS, so historians like Michael Wirt, for example, have written um, very important studies of uh, the real SD intellectuals, these people who are um, not just uh, have their, you know, their PhD in law and uh, careerist and so on, but are, are, are really uh, violent anti-Semites. Um, and, and so you, there's a, a recreation of a whole kind of generation uh, that comes to power in, in Germany uh, uh, on the collapse of the Weimar Republic, not just the stereotypical Nazi thugs, but also um, people who uh, have a kind of modern understanding of the world they 're technocrats in some ways, but who also have um, a, 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 a sort of mystical uh, sense that the salvation of Germany will only come about through the the annihilation of of, of the jew so I think this um, we shouldn 't go too far with the with the return of ideology as an argument in fact, I think there are uh, there are there have already been conferences and i think there are, there are publications coming um, which will ask the question have we have we gone too far with this hmm. notion, um, if we talk, for example, about the notion of the volksgemeinschaft, so this is the the Nazi concept of the the racial community, um, if we use that concept to think about what Nazi Germany was like, do we grant uh, too much credence to the nazi 's own view of the world, so do we end up? Uh, overstating the extent to which they were actually able to create this, uh, this Volksgemeinschaft. In other words, uh, the Nazis may have seen the world through the lenses of race, but we shouldn't be seduced by that into thinking that that was actually the reality that they created. Nevertheless, uh, I don't think it's possible anymore to go back to a situation uh, as in the 1980s, where one could talk about bureaucratic genocide without some sense of uh, the ideological process behind it
1: yeah it's uh, both in your book and and in your kind of the way you instinctively answer these kind of questions what i what what I hear and maybe I'm wrong, but what I hear is a sense from you that that the period from maybe the late eighties through the early two thousands was really a period of historians trying to get their understanding to make their understanding of the Holocaust accurate
0: mm-hmm.
1: that it was about. Decisions and dates and uh, motivations and what we've and, and, and here you know like I said correct me if I'm wrong but 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 that we've now perhaps gotten to a point where we are turning back to more kind of fundamental questions about the meaning of the Holocaust mm-hmm. and how it relates to modernity or to human nature is is that a sense of where you see the historiography going?
0: Um, I certainly see part of it going that way. I think there will, uh-huh. there will always be, and, and we, we see this with the, the continuing uh, slew of publications, which uh, shows no sign of, of slowing down. There will always be historians, um, I think this particularly uh, with respect to the publication of, of PhDs, there will always be historians who want to write um, archive-based uh, studies of a particular aspect of the Holocaust that has not been studied in detail before. And what's so extraordinary, and uh, again, you can think about the, the amount of uh, documents that are held at the USHMM, what's so extraordinary is that these, uh, these studies continue to appear. I mean, there's, there's simply no shortage of, of sources to allow this uh, to happen. Um, but the, the size of the historiography means, I think, um, that... Whilst there's no reason why the, these studies shouldn't continue to appear, I mean, they absolutely should. It's the lifeblood of, of any uh, historical study. There is also the need to step back a little and say, what does it all mean? Um, Hilberg, for example, always claimed, this is what he claimed in uh, Landsman's film, show. that he, um, he always wanted to ad- address the the smaller questions, the how, the mechanics of the Holocaust, because he was afraid of the big questions, the why. And I always thought that was um, false modesty. But actually, um, throughout his, his work, which was, of course, uh, I mean innovative and archive-based, but nevertheless, the why questions are always present. Uh, and he, he did address them on, on several occasions, too. And so um, those questions are there, whether we address them directly or not yeah. and so i think uh, we should address them because they're the things that motivate historians interest in the holocaust in the first place i think you know all those of us who uh, choose to work on the holocaust do so for all sorts of powerful uh, i mean i describe my um, motivation at the start of the interview as being um, about intellectual excitement but it's never only intellectual it's also emotional and uh, and personal and so uh, and and yes, professional historians were taught to kind of write those feelings out of our work. And actually, there's no reason why they shouldn't become driving questions. We should also think about um, why, why we're doing this. You know, why are we so fascinated by this topic still? Um, in some ways, why are we more fascinated by it than ever with all the um, research institutes and libraries and uh, transnational um, institutes and organizations devoted to it? Um, we should step back and think about what it all means. And so um, we can do that in terms of uh, thinking about, if you like, popular culture or collective memory, but also, uh, as you suggest, in a more uh, academic style, by asking more uh, conceptual or quasi-philosophical questions, such as the one about modernity. And that's, uh, of course, those are long-standing questions, but uh, throughout the 1990s, I think they got a little neglected in some ways. Uh, precisely because all these new empirical studies were being done. And now, although the the empirical studies continue to be produced, we have, we have enough of them to be able to uh, step back a little and, and reassess the
1: state of the field. Yeah, I, I don't mean to say to us too much, but I, I was, I don't know, shocked is too much of a word, but you point out in your discussion of, of Bauman and this whole issue of modernity and the Holocaust that that the new understanding we have based on new research of of the camps in Poland, the killing camps Mm -hmm. especially, suggests that even in the places which are kind of stereotypically understood as factory-like assembly Mm -hmm. lines, they actually weren't. And so, I guess I would ask, how did it take us that long to do the research on things that are so stereotypically representative of the Holocaust? Mm. Uh,
0: Well, I think there there are different levels to that, uh, to that question. I mean, first of all, there's one about the creation of collective memories, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and that takes us right back to the liberation of the camps. To um, who who liberated which camps? Um, don't forget that you know the Red Army liberated Auschwitz and Majdanek. Right. Um, the Operation Reinhard camps, Belzec, uh, Sobibor, and Treblinka had already been dismantled by the end of 1943, so there was very little there to, to actually see. Um, and the Western Allies liberated um, many camps but primarily we, re- we remember Buchenwald, Dachau and, and uh, Bergen-Belsen and, and um, they were not uh, extermination camps, they were in the appalling conditions they were at the end of the war because of the death marches to the camps and the total neglect. Uh, of those inmates at the end of the war. And so there was a kind of conceptual confusion built into um, the, the Western collective memory of the Holocaust from, from the very start about where the Holocaust took place, who its victims were, and, and so on. Um, but secondly, it has to do with, um, I think, diff- if you like practical considerations, over, well, about a million and a half of the, the Holocaust's victims were killed in the Operation Reinhard camps. Um, but because they were dismantled, there's very little by way of source material. It was very difficult. You know, there were there were uh, a, two survivors uh, from uh, from Belgium, uh and more from from Treblinka, but still very few. Uh, and uh, it was it took a long time for uh, sources to uh, be found to become accessible. Um, whereas Auschwitz, uh, as Peter Hayes uh, calls it, became yeah. the capital of the Holocaust precisely because so many, uh, not just because so many people were killed there. I mean, the, the same number were killed at Treblinka, uh, but, um, but because so many people had passed through it from from everywhere in Europe, uh, and so Auschwitz was relatively uh, well known, particularly by uh, by the 1990s after the. Uh, I think this this problem of of Belsen or, or Dachau being uh, considered to be the centres of the, of the Holocaust had finally been uh, overcome, and, and we, we started to understand a- actually uh, the majority of those uh, killed in, in gas chambers were killed in uh, Treblinka and Auschwitz. Um, but it was first of all it's, it's difficult. I mean, there's still only a couple of books on on the Reinhard camps um, because I think it's it's very hard to to find material. Uh, but what we do know now and as, as you say is that the more that's discovered about this the more this notion of factory line genocide is is inapplicable not because uh, lots of people weren't killed in a short space of time they were but the process um, by calling it industrial line genocide I think we shield ourselves from the true nature of what was actually actually going on there. Um, Treblinka um, was a a bit like, I mean, it's been described as the, the Wild East generally. I think, you know, this is a place um, surrounded by um, booty hunters, prostitutes. Um, alcohol-fueled uh, violence. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's really it's terrible. It bears no resemblance to a kind of uh, the clinical vision that is conjured up by the notion of industrial line genocide. You know, clean clean factories and, and workers in overalls. It's not like that at all. Uh, it's, it's it's actually uh, extremely brutal and, and gruesome. Um, there are descriptions of um, the engines that were used to, to power the, the gas chambers breaking down and all sorts of uh, of terrible. Uh, terrible descriptions, which we don't need to go into now, but um, it's, it's, I think people don't want to hear it in a way, although we, you know, we, we, we can read this stuff, but to actually make it break into the collective memory and to replace yeah. a kind of easy and rather um, unchallenging notion of factory line genocide is altogether more difficult.
1: Yeah, and and, and here I wanted to kind of kind of parenthetically say there 's way more in the book that than we 're going to be able to talk about in in this short interview, um, and so I encourage the listeners to go out and read it because it's it 's a wonderful um, summary of the knowledge that we have now here I want to say this this seems a logical point um, to talk about your discussion of genocide and mm-hmm. how the Holocaust fits into this broader mm. notion of genocide and because one of the ways in which people have often distinguished the Holocaust from other s- genocides is exactly this notion that the Holocaust was somehow modern and mechanical mm-hmm. and industrial as opposed to the killing in Rwanda mm-hmm. or Cambodia or something like this. Mm-hmm. So, so how has mm. Holocaust studies been informed by this broader field of genocide studies?
0: Um, that's actually, I think, quite a, a hard uh, question. It's much easier to show how genocide studies has been informed by Holocaust studies. Um, and I'm happy
1: to have you talk about that as well. Well, I
0: won't because I know um, that you know, Donald Bloxham and others have, have already uh, discussed that with you. So um, I don't think there's any, any need for me to go okay. into that in, in great detail. Other than to say um, that I think it's very interesting that um, many scholars who have become genocide scholars began um, yeah. as, study, as students yeah. of the Holocaust, uh, and so there, there sometimes um, it sometimes seems as though there's a kind of uh, conflict between Holocaust studies and genocide studies, um, and there are those who argue that the Holocaust gets too much attention and it distracts from um, the, the study of other genocides, uh, and. I'm not really sure that's true, that uh, actually, if it were not for people who wrote about the Holocaust, then going on to write about genocide, genocide studies as a discipline would not be, um, the, the, or as a field, let's say it's not a discipline, as a field would not exist in the, in the way it does, does now. Um, and if people think that um, other genocides are neglected, well, go out and study them. Um, there's, <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's no problem with that. Um, but the the opposite, uh, the the reverse of of, uh, of that, which is how how has genocide studies um, uh, impacted on Holocaust studies? I, I think um, the key way here is uh, through thinking about genocide as um, less less through um, the legalistic way in which the term was initially. Uh, defined and and created by Lemkin and the United Nations and so on rather to think uh, historically about genocide as the unfolding of a process as a dynamic and that's what you do see very clearly I think in um, the historiography of the Holocaust of the 1990s the regional studies and so on and and that I think automatically speaks against the modernity argument to some extent because the modernity argument suggests that, um, that the Nazis decided to establish camps um, this is where the the Jews were killed. Actually, of course, the the death camps um, are the the very end of a process uh, that began much earlier, uh, and they are in some senses aberrant. Actually, um, you know, the the Reinhard camps used very primitive motor engines to kill the Jews. Auschwitz, which is where you see the use of um, of Zyklon B. Uh, which is also a very simple uh, rat poison, basically, to, to kill people in, in gas mm-hmm. chambers. It's hardly technologically sophisticated, um, but it was, uh, in some sense, aberrant anyway. By the time that the, the Jews of Hungary are killed in March um, to July 1944, uh, actually the vast majority of the Holocaust victims have already been killed. Browning, again, uh, talks about this uh, very eloquently. He says that uh, in... At the start of uh, 1942, 80% of the victims of the Holocaust are still alive, whereas by the start of 1943, 80% of the the, the victims of the Holocaust are dead. And and those people have been primarily been killed uh, either by face-to-face shooting, or in these very primitive uh, gas chambers of the Operation Reinhard camps or gas vans. So, I think um, what genocide studies has has helped us to think about, first of all, is the Holocaust as the unfolding of a process whereby one stage leads into another rather than a single decision, if you like. It, it, make, it makes the debate about the decision-making process seem a little less pressing than it might once have, have seemed. Um, but it also brings, uh, brings home, I think, how um, the Holocaust was uh, part of, of a whole trajectory and a tradition of European and, and world history. Uh, And and Donald and others have have argued uh, this very clearly and persuasively, I think, is that uh, if you think about the Holocaust as a phenomenon on its own, um, it continues to fuel a kind of Zonderweg thesis or mm-hmm. um, Germans as, as ill uh, to use a kind of Kurt Vonnegut uh, mm-hmm. metaphor um, but, but actually you can't really understand the rise of Nazism and you can't understand the crimes of, of the Nazis without I think situating uh, the Holocaust into a, a much a broader span of European and, and world history um, that's not an argument about Simple notions of causality, you know, the um, Africa to Auschwitz or whatever, but it is just saying um, this is a much more complex uh, phenomenon than, than we ever thought. And, and that, that's, I think, is a real contribution from genocide studies. It's opened up. Um, uh, on on the one hand, some some debates which get a little uh, unpleasant, uh, but nevertheless, of uh, some very some very serious questions. I think about uh, how to contextualize the Holocaust in in the context of uh, of world history more generally.
1: Yeah, I'm particularly intrigued. You pointed out the kind of the 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 implication of our research most recently, and, and, and the idea that many of the people who are killed are killed face to face, which of course leads us to rethink the experience of the perpetrators and the motivation of the perpetrators. Mm. And, mm. and of course, Browning's book, Ordinary Men's uh, I don't know if it starts that, but at least it contributes greatly to that discussion. Yeah. That book is, 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 I don't want to say old, but it's been around for a while. And that book filters through to the genocide studies community. I'm not so sure that the kind of geno- responses of the genocide community is filtered back to the Holocaust historians, things like Scott Stra- Strauss's book or Leanne Fuji's mm-hmm. or Alex Hinton's. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and that mm. I don't know if that's just my perception or, or whether that's, a broader claim that can be made, but
0: um, I, yeah I think that's probably true. I mean, there are of course historians who who read those books and who mm-hmm. um, think about uh, perpetrators in a comparative perspective or try to think about Holocaust perpetrators whilst drawing on literature uh, yeah. from other genocides. Uh, but I think you're right, actually, in that um, the leading historians of Holocaust perpetrators, uh, Longerich and so on, um, draw on a very substantial uh, source base and historiography uh, of the Holocaust, uh, which is enough in a sense. You know, this is a, yeah. a huge uh, literature in its own right. Uh, and so I don't think they feel. Um, first of all I, I think uh, often oftentimes they think well you know i 'm not an expert i, I don 't speak Kinyarwanda or Khmer or whatever it is, and therefore <laughs> feel like it 's inappropriate for them to draw on this literature um, whereas my view would always be of course there's a if you do comparative work there 's always a loss uh, in that respect. Um, but there's also, I think, the risks involved, which are that it's broad brush, or it's superficial, or you're not an expert, or uh, not an area expert, or a language expert. Um, the gain is that you you can nevertheless uh, ask interesting questions and hopefully make interesting uh, connections between uh, between things. Um, but I I think, yeah, I, I guess uh, sadly you're probably right. Actually, that uh, although there's a very substantial literature on. Holocaust perpetrators, Mm -hmm. Um, it tends not to draw on the literature on perpetrators of other genocides. Perhaps the exception to that is the, the literature written by social psychologists, Mm-hmm. Um, which draws also, I mean, that has its own problems, uh, but of course draws on uh, the famous Milgram experiments or the Stanford Prison experiments and so on, um, in order to to try and say that this is a cross-cultural phenomenon or a situational phenomenon or, or whatever the argument happens to be. Um, so the, the, it, it it does have an impact on the field, uh, but perhaps I think you're you're right to say not a very not a very great one at the moment.
1: I read your book, and and I imagine myself as an incoming graduate student wanting to study the Holocaust and wondering how many years it's going to take me just to become even <laughs> basically fluent in the literature of the Holocaust. What? Where do we go now in terms of Holocaust studies with this Library after library after library of of, of book and, and 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 authors that we need to know about. I think first of
0: all you have to do a, a master's in uh, in Holocaust studies um, mm-hmm. in order to get a grounding in the literature, and then you have to make make decisions. I mean nobody can can master all this stuff. I think as a a starting PhD student, you then have to decide what it is you're going to work on. Um, and immerse yourself in that literature because it's impossible to familiarize yourself with all of it. And particularly, I mean, I'm not even talking only about the the historiography, but if you want to take an interest in post-Holocaust philosophy or Mm. um, literary studies or film studies, uh, museum studies, all of these have now uh, very large literatures pertaining to the Holocaust. Um, as does every other discipline, geography and music and, and so on. Um, so you have, I think, to make uh, some some difficult choices, and I think that's that's really what a, a master's degree is for: to orient yourself in the discipline um, and to uh, to find the the subfield that uh, interests you uh, most. But it's you know it's not like studying canal building um, in in early <laughs> modern England. Uh, uh, you just have to accept the fact that you'll you'll never be able to finish. I mean, I have to say this to PhD students: um, don't worry. <laughs> you know, if you if you, as you're submitting that yet another book has come has come out. It's, you know, that's just <laughs> always like that.
1: <laughs> I tell my students when they complain about the reading assignments that uh, no, you don't have to read that book. You get to read that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, uh, I just like to ask kind of as a way to move toward a conclusion mm-hmm. first. Um, in and, and what can you suggest one or two or, or maybe three books about the Holocaust that, that people should read now, yeah. maybe new books, mm-hmm. may, maybe classic books on here. I'm ambushing you a little mm-hmm. bit. I, 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 one of the things you say in your book is, is, how perceptive the early historians of the Holocaust mm-hmm. turn out to actually have mm-hmm. been. So perhaps it's a classic book that people may not have read precisely because it's 30 or 40 years old. Uh-huh.
0: Um, well, actually, uh, I think one of the one of the things I would recommend, uh, not by one of the early historians of the Holocaust, but about them, um, is uh, Laura Jokosch's book, Collect and Record, which is about the, um, the early documentation centers that are established immediately after the end of the war uh, in order to um, collect information and testimony whilst it was still fresh. Um, because I think in all, the, um, in all the historiography and the debates that have been going on since the 1980s, uh, there's been a tendency to uh, forget the contribution made by the early historians and by the early uh, research institutes. And uh, Jokush, Presents uh, that material in, I think, a very exciting and and fresh way. So that's certainly a book that I would uh, recommend. And the writings of those historians, some of them are uh, still available. Um, A book such as Roads to Extinction by Philip Friedman, for example, which was published uh, in about 1980, but is a collection of uh, essays that he'd been writing since the mid-1940s, is a really important book. And actually, and Uh, some of his writings are on uh, the concept of genocide as well as on um, things that were pertaining specifically to uh, what later became called the Holocaust so you can see that these debates are not uh, not new, Uh, they've been ongoing for a very long time and that um, really uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. That without these, the work of these people, who uh, many of them uh, Holocaust survivors themselves, if without them, uh, their initial work, efforts to uh, recover this material, much of much of our work would be uh, much much harder. So those, uh, book is one that I would certainly recommend, and uh, the writings of people like uh, like Philip Friedman. Uh, but a, a book uh, since we've also talked a bit about uh, conceptualising the Holocaust. I'd also recommend uh, Alain Confino's book, uh, Foundational Pasts, which is Hmm. uh, a book which compares the state of Holocaust historiography to the historiography of the French Revolution. And he takes as his starting point uh, Francois Furet's argument that uh, the French Revolution is over. uh, from uh, from the 1980s, by which he means that uh, a certain interpretation of the French Revolution is over. And, and uh, Confino says the same thing about the, the Holocaust, that our main historiographical interpretive frameworks have reached exhaustion point. We know what we're talking about when we talk about uh, the war, radicalization, uh, the importance of race and ideology to Nazi Germany. Where are our new questions going to come from? Uh, I think that's a very interesting book. His, his um, his answer to that is that uh, cultural history, by which he means the ways in which people in the past provided meaning to their lives, uh, is going to provide us with some interesting uh, questions to, to ask in future years. And uh, I agree, I mean, it's clearly not the only way that one can go about writing history, but it's. I think it's a very exciting book in
1: that it, it opens uh, all sorts of new lines of inquiry. It looks like my weekend is now booked. Good. Uh, so what are you working on now?
0: Well, I've got... Um, uh, from, from a lot of the work that I've done on uh, on the historiography of the Holocaust and the contextualization of the Holocaust, I became more interested generally in uh, post-war European history. And uh, I recently edited the uh, Oxford Handbook of Post-War European History. And then um, as a result of having done that, I thought I'd quite like to, uh, to write my own book on the subject. And so that's a book called... Uh, goodbye to all that, question mark. Uh, the story of Europe since 1945 is coming out in uh, early 2014 with OUP. Um, and uh, it, it picks up on some of the things that we've been discussing today, but in a much more general context, it's also a history of um, the Cold War and uh, many of the other uh, key events of uh, post-war European history, the, the, the European Union and so on, the rise and fall. Of the post-war consensus, Um, but at the moment I'm just started working on a book on uh, the liberation of the Nazi camps, uh, which is something again it ties into my interest in post-war European history, um, and it's something that uh, has been curiously neglected. I think that there is a a growth in research on the early historians, on the early research institutes. Uh, There's been uh, quite a lot of research done on DP camps, uh, but with the exception of one or two classic studies, Robert Abzug and uh, John Bridgman, uh, there hasn't been a, a really good uh, synthetic account of the liberation of the camps for, uh, for some years, and so that's my, uh, my next plan.
1: Well, that sounds wonderful, and I look forward to reading them. I want to say thanks again so much for um, joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And I wish you a pleasant summer when you get a chance to write and to read and reflect. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Dan Stone, author of the book Histories of the Holocaust. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview Annie Pullman and Deborah Meyerson about their recent edited collection, Genocide and Mass Atrocities in Asia, Legacies and Prevention. Until then, I hope you have a great month.